Hello everyone and welcome to the 44th episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 11th of November 2021. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. We have a letter of comment this week. So Chris Garcia writes to say that it was another wonderful episode and Alison got the correct answer on her second try. And as we all know, Americans are always wrong the first time. So uh, that's good. You've been promoted to American, Alison. So hurrah for that. Um, And he also says that he disagrees with Alison that a single person on Twitter can blow things completely out of proportion because if that were the case his calls to have every Big Bang Theory episode forever deleted would have worked and that is uh, a good observation it's random random Big Bang Theory episodes deleted no I mean I do like what John says there actually is that it's not that a single person on Twitter can can blow things out of proportion it's that one person says something and this starts a snowball of lots of people saying what they might have felt but did not otherwise say on twitter um that can sometimes happen so it looks like everything has suddenly exploded but actually maybe it's just one person voicing the opinion that then a lot of people go oh actually it's more than me who feels this way this is worth speaking out about Chris also says that he didn't know Shang Chi was set in San Francisco, and asks if you can see his car in any of the shots. And when I rewatch it, Chris, I will let you know. Are you still driving that car that was quite beige? Yeah, I, I think I think unless like Chris is driving the Wienermobile, it's going to be hard to pick his car out in the shots. And then we got some comments on Facebook from Fran and from Farah. Well, I think Fran's is just like one of many comments we've received uh, disagreeing with Alison's stance on squashes being the only carvable fruit or vegetable because <laughs> people have reminders that you can carve melons, as as Fran said, and that the smell of burning melon will haunt her forever. I just think we don't need to give that any more context. This year I have a pumpkin dremel and I am slightly concerned that, because normally I carve pumpkins using liner cutting tools and I'm slightly wor- worried that the dremel is going to create a smell of burning pumpkin flesh in my kitchen i was gonna say we also got comments from other listeners suggesting that we had neglected the idea of being able to carve turnips yes a scotsman who shall remain nameless because we forgot to ask him if we were allowed to quote him so we're just going to quote him but not tell you who it was who could it be a scottish person that john and liz know commented that he used to carve neeps when he was a nipper and neeps, I gather, are not squashes. There's a thing about American cultural imperialism where people go, aha, carving carving pumpkins is American cultural imperialism because in Britain it is traditional and it is traditional to carve turnips or, or neeps, which are Swede. And they do make quite horrifying and hideous Halloween faces, but they're also hard as rocks. They are very hard to carve and children have memories of carving turnips but I think in many cases they didn't actually do very much of the actual carving themselves their parents kind of took one look at what they were doing with a very sharp knife and went oh why don't you watch while I finish off your pumpkin dear and pumpkins are much better for carving than turnips that's why the American tradition has taken over because you can carve pumpkins and you know you do quite well to get a kind of two eyes and a mouth is about as much as you're going to get out of a turnip even if you're quite good but you're right they're not squashes 
So we are going to discuss some news from the EasterCon. So the first news is that EasterCon has a hotel. Uh, and this is going to be the Radisson Hotel and Conference Centre London Heathrow, which fans may know better as the Park Inn. It's the same hotel that was used for Iterbium and Dysprosium, which were the 2019 and 2015 Easter cons, uh, both of which I think went smashingly. I had a good time with both those. Um, I really like the Park Inn, so I am excited about this. Uh, part of the reason I like the Park Inn is because I like their breakfasts, so I'm really hoping that the rebrand hasn't changed the breakfast. What do you th two think about this excellent news? Or do you think it's terrible news? Let's have some hot takes. Um, I'm happy enough with the Park Inn. Um, I think it would be nice to have tried somewhere new, but they couldn't make it work, so that's okay. And... Um, I'm happy enough to go back there. There are some access issues with the long corridor at the park-in, and I'm sure they're going to be thinking about how they can mitigate those. I personally like the park-in because both times we've been at the park-in before, I've been doing the newsletter and they've given us a room right next to the Real Ale Bar with an absolutely fuck-ton of PowerPoints and internet. So that's made me very happy. I actually didn't go to Eastcon in 2019. I think it is interesting. We're going to end up with like three of the past four in-person EasterCons will actually have been in the same hotel. But at this point, it's like EasterCon needs a hotel. And at this point, I think there's just, you know, you, you can't really gripe about it. We've just got to go with whatever hotel is actually feasible. And if the formerly parking now Radisson um, is feasible, then yeah, let's go for it. And I actually don't mind Heathrow because it is a bit in the middle of nowhere. But it also does usually have quite a lot of like alternative uh, accommodation in different price ranges, which I quite like. And it's convenient for foreign travellers. Hashtag hint hint Liz. It is assuming you want to, and assuming you want to like walk straight off a plane and into Isacon. Yeah, although I think that would be an extremely discombobulating experience. Espana did that. Um, ask her, ask her how much. No, don't ask her how much she enjoyed it. Ask her why there's not a single photo of her at that convention where she's smiling. That's a better question to ask. That will more quickly get you to the answers you desire, listener. But yeah, it turns out doing an Easter con on eight hours of jet lag in the wrong direction isn't fun. We also had some news from EasterCon. They announced that they were going to have a new guest of honour. And the new guest of honour is Tasha Suri, who is the author of the epic fantasy The Jasmine Throne. And she has won an award, the Sydney J. Browns Award from the British Fantasy Society, and has been nominated for the Astounding and Locus Awards. So yes, I'm excited. I had not heard of her before, but uh she seems really cool and i'm gonna have to read some of her books are we excited about tasha siri joining the guest of honor roster yes i'm excited because i have heard of her and i've heard good things about her books but not actually got around to reading any so of course this is the perfect excuse for me to get around to reading them i observe that she's got a book coming out which is what souls are made of a young adult wuthering heights remix and I kind of thought that Wuthering Heights was a young adult Wuthering Heights remix, so I was I was fascinated by this. But perhaps it was just a young adult book when I was a young adult. I mean, it was entirely read by moody teenage girls. Alison was alive in Jane Austen's time. <laughs> not quite, but not far off. Maybe it's young adult in the sense that it's a book you would actually give to a young adult nowadays, whereas I'm not sure I would give Wuthering Heights to a young adult. 
That was what I was saying, but I was saying it with more meanness. High five, John. So the other sadder piece of Eastcon news is that unfortunately Zencho has had to pull out of um, the guest slot uh, for family reasons. And so this is a great shame. I'm a huge uh, fan of Zencho, so I was looking forward to seeing her at Eastcon. Um, but I hope her and her family are well. Yeah, pretty much the same. It's it's sad she had to withdraw. Uh, I was really looking forward to seeing her because her books are great and I've seen her on panels and she is also great. Um, and obviously, you know, we, we wish all the best to her and hope she can come to a future Easter come. Yeah, no, I don't really have anything to add to that. It's just sad. And then um, that wraps up the EasterCon news. So, listeners, uh, we're going to insert a discussion we had a couple of months ago now on kind of the topic of EasterCon venues in the future with COVID looming large over the community uh we wanted to wait until eastcon had announced their venue because we didn't want any of what we're about to say to be taken as advice uh it's all extremely speculative and kind of us just kind of musing and pondering also two of us are on committees of eastercon bids and so nothing in this should be taken as having anything to do with our work on those bids neither of us are responsible for sight we're both responsible for communications that's quite funny really isn't it it turns out we have similar interests, listeners. Who knew? I would like to know the only time I was communications for an EasterCon, I was rubbish at it, so. <laughs> uh, excellent, excellent. Thank you, Liz. So now EasterCon has announced that they are in a hotel, we can immediately have a long discussion about, but what if they weren't? Which will be hopefully interesting to you, the listener. And we will see you for picks after this brief sojourn backwards in time. Is the Twilight Zone music public domain? Because if it is, it's going here. And if it isn't, I'll just keep that statement in. Do 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 do. Today we are going to be discussing the future of Easter cons, especially spinning off of a discussion on the UK Easter con community group on Facebook, uh, talking about um, Easter con in the times of COVID and what needs to happen to Easter con going forward sort of over the next five years so you might think this is too time super timely but as you'll actually be listening to it at christmas or something it won't necessarily be and when we say the future of easter cons we should make it clear that we mean the future of easter cons in a in a generic sense and not the future of easter cons the project that ran for several years a few years ago and drew no conclusions and wound itself up um, i think it concluded that Lots of people had a lot of opinions, but none of them were very um, coherent or consensual. And so EasterCon might as well just get on with it until the next crisis. And so here we are. To be fair, I made a bunch of graphs for that project, and I can't remember whether there was an action with me to make more graphs, which I have not done, and therefore doomed the future of EasterCon. <laughs> no, it really did. The project, wound its, the project reached a conclusion, wound itself up, and made a report. It is done. It was fine. It it was correctly managed, but it didn't change anything because it concluded that there wasn't a balance of people wanting the EasterCon to incorporate. Nick Whitehead on the UK EasterCon community group asked a question about the site for reclamation, which is at the time of the recording, the next EasterCon. And there was a response from the reclamation committee sort of saying, we are in negotiations and... We can't really say anything yet, but we are working on it. And that was about two weeks ago. There has been a flurry of discussion over the last three or four days. Uh, and 
Liz, do you want to kind of outline and summarise the discussion so far? Yeah, I, I will try and summarise it. And I will say that for this discussion, I'm, I'm not so much interested in all the specific comments there as kind of the, the broader conversation which hangs off it, um, which is to me kind of maybe two parts to it. One is that we are in uh, a strange new world for venues. And so after essentially two years of cancelled events, I think the environment for finding hotels and booking hotels and making, you know, deals and contracts with hotels is probably quite different than it was in 2019. Um, that's something that's alluded to in the thread about um, sites wanting wanting big deposits or wanting different styles of deals. And I think that's something we're going to have to deal with going forward. And the second one is, well, and the second thread is that it seems clear now that, that COVID, unfortunately, was not COVID-19 and it's there for a year and it, it's gone away and we don't have to think about it anymore. But it might be that we have to make general adjustments and think about things for several, maybe many years to come. And it's worth thinking about what adjustments we can make and what adjustments we might want to make and what adjustments we might want to make that would help very much with, say, the COVID situation, but would kind of make the Eastercon maybe not the Eastercon anymore. And so there, those are the two things to discuss. And, and this is very relevant to the work that I'm doing for Eastercon 2023, where we are explicitly starting to think about asking the community, what is it that you want from an Eastercon? What things make it Eastercon-like? And, you know, if Eastercon turned out to be a um, convention limited to 100 socially distanced people, in a tent in Florida, would that still be the Eastercon? And, you know, I think most people probably say it wouldn't be, but there's probably some intermediate points where it would still be the Eastercon. And what does that look like? One of the things kind of that has come up in this thread is talking about whether or not it's going to be possible for Eastercons to kind of continue in hotels. So do we want to talk about kind of the alternatives to hotels and um, what that might imply for Eastercon going forward? So, yeah, I think we do. Eastercon has flirted with the idea of going to a holiday camp. It has actually gone to student accommodation, but only once. Um, there are a number of sites dotted around the UK that are kind of, they were colleges owned by large organisations, but they do still exist. Um, and they are sites where you could run conventions, not necessarily the Eastercon, but certainly there are sites of that kind. Um, and all of uh, those seem plausible. And then people have actually said, well, maybe we should reconstitute the Eastercon as a festival and put it in a field with tents rather than in a hotel. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of the space of that. I don't know. And then obviously there's there's virtual conventions as well. But I think um, I think most people agree that the Eastercon could be physical. We'd like it to be physical if it's possible. I, I think it would be interesting to revisit the idea of sort of student accommodation type things, because I think it is a while since Eastercon's been there. And my impression is that a lot of the sort of student accommodation places have gone a bit more upmarket and may include things like, for instance, ensuite bathrooms and, you know, beds which are not extremely uncomfortable single beds. Um, so it's probably worth investigating what's there. A lot of these places have double beds even and 
quite a lot of them have a mix. So they have quite a lot of double rooms and they still have quite a lot of single rooms. And so you'll be able to offer things at different price points, which I think would be quite welcome to people because it's clear that the traditional way of saying, oh, it's going to be X amount if you're in a twin or a double and and somewhat less than X if you're in a single. That's not the way that hotels work. It hasn't been for some years. Um, so it's becoming very expensive to attend as a single person unless you're prepared to share. And the other thing they may also have is, you know, some student accommodation may have flats with kind of multiple bedrooms in one kind of complex, which could be a quite affordable option for families or for friends who want to share. Multiple bedrooms in a kind of complex with a kitchen. And I think that's very attractive. Certainly, I've self-catered for a number of conventions in the past and found it a very good way for doing a a longer convention. I think three days is about as much as I'm prepared to eat entirely hotel and restaurant food without becoming quite unhappy about that. And um, and self-catering is an option for people. So I think this is the sort of thing that we should be exploring. And this is this actually ties into conversations that are being had in academia as well, kind of um, in parallel, because a lot of academic conferences are seeing the benefits now to being able to use university accommodation. So when I started going to conferences as a student, most of the conferences were held in university accommodation, but they had like hotels or arrangements with B&Bs because the student accommodation wasn't really up to much. Uh, and that has been changing as as I've been in academia. So I do think um, that is something that universities are trying to do as an extra profit centre effectively, is make their student accommodation more appealing for the sorts of events that, that might want to use the space. Uh, and Eastercom probably does fit into that um, bill. But one of the things about university accommodation is that although your rooms are probably still enclosed and your conference space still has some rooms that you need to manage, the corridors in university accommodation tend to be outside. And that actually helps with, you've got more ventilation. You will move from, unless unless the conference centre is really grander than I think it is, um, you will still have a certain amount of moving around outside, which does mean that people will get wet, but also means that they will get some fresh air. And I, I am a hearty believer of fresh air. I, I have several comments. One is that I am on currently... As we recall this, I am on day nine of eating exclusively in a hotel and it is starting to wear a little bit, which is why I'm going to the supermarket in half an hour. Two, are they actually corridors if they're outside? Oh, good question. No, and and, and I think that is basically one of the main trade-offs is, is trying to work out the extent to which the outside bits are uh, mitigatable. Um, that's one of the huge challenges, I think. Um, but I think it's a challenge we can meet. And I also think having the bits in between parts of the convention being outside will make it more COVID secure. And that segues very nicely to how about we had EasterCon in a tent? Yeah, so one of the options that people have suggested for EasterCon is that it runs like a festival. And I think unlike Liz or John, Liz, do you do festivals? Not really, no. No. So unlike Liz and John, I really, really like festivals. I quite like camping. I don't, camping is not as comfortable as hotels, but it is quite nice to be able to drink a vast amount of alcohol and then sink into a tent rather than having to worry about getting somewhere else that isn't the festival. Um, So it's kind of like everyone gets to stay in the convention campsite. 
it's nice waking up in the morning uh, in a campsite because it's kind of clean and fresh and lovely. But <laughs> there's quite a lot of big butts here. Festivals come in a couple of different flavours. So they either have all of their stuff outside, in which case you need to deal with rain, but you also need to deal with the fact that outside is a terrible environment for the spoken word. Outside is a brilliant environment for music. It, it sounds amazing. It looks amazing. You get to dance in a field. It's it's great. It's really not such a good environment for the spoken word. And so you find that a lot of festivals have smaller stages for spoken word events. And most EasterCon things are spoken word events. And the thing about these these smaller stages is that they're often enclosed. They're often actually tents with walls. And that's just a room like any other room. So you you immediately lose some of your benefit. And, and yes, you can take the walls off and, and improve the COVID secureness of of your site by having marquees with open sidewalls. And we had that at the festival I was at last weekend. And it does help a lot, especially if it's cold and windy. But, you know, it's going to be cold and windy at Easter. Easter's a terrible time. We would probably have to move to the summer. And then you're going to discover that all of the event infrastructure in the UK is in use all summer, every summer. That's how it works. So you and everybody else is is bidding on event infrastructure. And, and also, we would need an expert. We need to basically co-opt. I think Linda Kriecki is the only fan who does this for a living. Um, but we need to find somebody who could then contract an events management company to do it for us. We would not be able to run it the way we run other bits of Eastercon by, by well, I know so-and-so's got a suitable hanger he can bring. It's not going to work. You, you need to you need to subcontract that. And at that point, you're probably into festival pricing, which which you could be. It's OK. No. So that that was one of the suggestions on the on the Facebook group. It was kind of mooted that we could move to campsites, which might be a more affordable option. But I, I think the key problem there is that campsites tend to be in use at bank holidays and when it's nice enough weather to have an event at a campsite. Yeah. So there's an alternative that we could be on a large fixed campsite. But again, they're full all summer. EasterCon thrives in part because we use hotels at a point where no one else wants to use the hotels because most hotels, the the conference spaces are outfitted for professionals who are not going to professional conferences over the Easter weekend. And so we can sometimes get cheap accommodation. So it might be that we are actually not going to find that moving to outdoor locations suits us particularly well. Sideline, this is much less true than it used to be. Yeah, I think it is still more true for hotels than for places like Butlins and Pondins that we are currently in less competition for those spaces. Yes, we are not the only hobbyist. It used to be that we were really quite unusual as being a hobbyist conference over Easter, but that's not true anymore. There are quite a lot and we're not even a particularly big one. So It's also absolutely true if you look at like holiday camps like the Butlins and the Pontins type thing, that every weekend in the off-season is a different weekend interest group. And that's basically what keeps them going between the, the school holidays when they are extremely expensive and full. But even even so, there are that many kind of special interest groups, I think, that you might not even find a free weekend that there isn't something on at the Pontins. No, I, I think we could do a deal with a holiday camp if that was what people wanted. Um, but the, it would have to be an off-season. I don't think it could be Easter weekend because it's in the school holidays. EasterCon, one of the core features of EasterCon is that it is a four-day weekend that everybody in the UK pretty much gets off apart from Vickers. And and that's been quite a good thing 
for creating the community. Obviously, people can take holiday around conventions and quite a lot of our members have retired or work flexibly and can take can take days off anyway. So we, I don't think the commitment to Easter is as absolute as it has been, but I think it would be quite hard not to rush over Easter. And also, I think there are still sites. I, you know, it's not that there are no sites, it's that there are no perfect sites, but there are a lot of sites that are more perfect than Potter's. One of the things that comes up in the thing is that um, Kate Solomon said that some of affluent class fandom will grumble about not being in a four-star hotel. And at this point, I would like to wheel out my privilege and say that one of my absolute things I like when I'm staying away from home is to have an ensuite bathroom. And it is my understanding it is difficult to have that in a tent. Um, and so I do quite like... I, I don't need to be in a four-star hotel, but but I, I do I do... I think a, a campsite would be the point at which I was like, do I really want to keep going to EasterCons? And that would be a shame. That there is a solution for you, which is camper van hire. Oh. But I mean, it's expensive. But I mean, I think I would turn to the people who go, oh, I'm not prepared to be in a tent because Portaloos and say, camper van hire. You know, if, if, if that's something that's really, that's really a deal breaker. But you might find that it's not as bad as you think. Portaloos are not as bad as you think. Yeah, but I don't like the idea that this idea that I can drink a lot of beer and then fall into my tent sort of falls over if I then have to keep running out of my tent to go and find the port loop. Okay, this is there's probably too much information here. There's a whole process whereby you go to the loo before you leave the festival site, then you go to the loo again just before you get back to your tent, and then you're okay and until you wake up in the morning. And and then very occasionally you wake up in the night going, oh, shit, do you need to go to the loo? But then you keep a pair of Crocs with you as well as your regular shoes so you can just shove Crocs on. You can't, you can't piss into a Croc, all of the wee would fall out. Yeah, and, and to be fair, people do also take toilet tents with them and, and things like that. You know, it's not totally, there are, there are solutions. I am also in the category of people who don't enjoy driving home from conventions, so so a camper van would not. But I, I take your point that this is not necessarily insurmountable, and if Eastcon did change to festivals, I would give it a very good go before I gave up. You are you are right that I would be exploring all of these things. I might also contract, as well as contracting with somebody to actually run the site for me, which we would definitely have to do, I might also contract a glamping company to provide us with, like the... I mean, so the ones we had this weekend, the last weekend, which were absolutely lovely, I'm going to say who they are. They're a company called Norfolk Bells, and they did lovely bell tents. They didn't have support, but but the more expensive glamping also often has a glamping area where you have your glamping tents and um, proper flush toilets and showers and maybe a central tent with a concierge and a, and charging stations and and electricity so you can plug your straightening irons in and things like that so so glamping comes in a number of different systems and i think i definitely think if we were doing an EasterCon in a field we'd have charging facilities it would be one of the things that we would do you know we'd have electrical power in a place where you could go though you do there's a security risk but i mean we'd be quite small for a festival we're big for a we're quite big for a hotel but we're quite small for a festival well, you get you get the thing where you know you you lock your phone in a locker to charge it and then come back and get it, wouldn't you? Or some, you know, there's there's ways to overcome this, and we'd already be having to contract with people to help us with the electronics anyway, because you know, Ethercon cannot itself set up, uh, you know, electricity in a field. The people I would go to are the people who run this kind of like 
There's kind of like nerdy hackers festivals in fields. And I think they, they bootstrap it all using volunteers. So they'd be, they could give us some learnings and they probably also know what you need to do to, do, to get enough internet into a field. Yeah. It's like, is it EMF camp? I think I'll look that up and we can make sure it goes in. Yeah. Yeah. Something, something like that. I mean, I, I'm not totally averse to the idea of doing a convention of field because I quite like being in fields, but I think. I like being in fields, but I don't like being in fields in March. That's the problem. Yeah, no, we definitely not at Easter if it's if it's a if it's a field if it's a festival a, a, a festival type thing, then you do it in the summer. I would say I think we were quite worried at the Harrogate Easter Con because there was one access issue where to avoid a flight of stairs you had to go outside, and I remember we were very concerned about that because of inclement weather. And I think that didn't turn out to be too much of a problem. Am I remembering correctly? Because I wasn't really running the con by that point. Um, it wasn't really too much of a common problem because most people decided they'd cope with the flight of stairs. And we actually did have golf buggies to take people round. Hmm. And that was the, the the hotel had golf buggies and, and drove people back and forth. And the people who used it liked that service and thought it was a good accommodation. I think we it was much harder for the people who who could walk a few steps, but walking up and down a flight repeatedly was was difficult for them. And I think we could have done a lot more to encourage those people to make use of the buggies. But it's certainly true that outside does have quite a lot of access issues that are not immediately. I mean, it's normally pretty flat, and you could you could have scooters. Scooters work much better in fields than they do in hotel corridors. You said scooters work much better in fields than hotel corridors. Do you mean the other way around? No, no, they, they're fine in festivals. There are festival-friendly scooters. Oh, okay. The only problem is that you do get people who have never used a scooter before who have drunk 18 pints of Wadworth's except, and those people are not safe. And I think we would probably have to say that if you are using a scooter, then we would expect you to very much limit the amount that you drink. And I understand that that is infringing on people's liberties somewhat, but it would be important for safety. You have designated scooter drivers. I mean, one one thing I didn't say is that the best example of a convention, you know, that ran in a sort of uh, semi-field situation was uh, Plotcom. Spent lots of time running around in the dark doing your fucking scavenger hunt, I think. <laughs> it was Flick scavenger hunt. Okay, so we were, when I say a semi-field, a semi -field, this was the Civil Service College, so it was really pretty nice. It, it It was some primitive in some ways, and some of the rooms were better than others. So some of the bedrooms were still kind of hard single beds, but but it's quite nice. And we were over Maybank holiday, so it was quite nice weather as well, and people went swimming and things. Yeah, in the sort of model of, you know, my bedroom was in one room, and then I went outside and crossed like some green space in order to get to the convention centre bit. But yes, my room there was lovely, and we had a lovely time running around outside in the dark for some reason, eating pizza outside. Probably weren't supposed to have got pizza delivered, but we did. Hey. I don't think they minded. I think they were relaxed. Yeah. I think it's one of the advantages of these sorts of sites is that they are much more relaxed than hotels about you bringing food and drinking because students bring food and drinking, obviously, and the notion that they shouldn't let people hasn't really occurred to them. Nice, no, good. But no, it was it was basically fine and they were very keen to secure custom. But I think since then, the entire site has been sold for housing, really. I think it's long gone. Um, but I'd always wanted to run a convention at the Civil Service College. I'd always thought, oh, that would be a fantastic site for a con. 
Um, and and it saved. We didn't have to spend anything on tech because one of the nice things about academic sites is that every single room in your academic site is set up for the sorts of things you want to do at an Easter Garden, apart from maybe put a big band on. And I think if I was running on a site like that, I might just go, hmm. no, we won't do that. But they often have theatres and you can use, a th- if they have a theatre, you can use the theatre for that sort of thing. Yeah. One of the things that came up on the discussion thread on Facebook was basically one fan with access requirements was kind of discussing the, the difficulties of moving outside. There were some people in the discussion who were not taking that as seriously as they might have done. I think that would be a big thing you'd need to think about. But I'm not sure whether it's intractable or whether it's just difficult. That would be something we'd find out if we ever did it. But as we've noted, SFX Weekender already uses a site like this. uh, And so presumably they already have some expertise in what the issues here are and how you might want to mitigate them. So it might be that we could pick their brains if it ever did come to that. We're talking about the possibility of doing a COVID-safe convention here or a more COVID-safe convention. And given that people are going, oh, well, it's fine to exclude every child under 12 to make our convention more COVID-secure, I, I think you may have to say, oh, actually, there are access needs that can't be met if we do this. This is something that we will be deliberately choosing. But certainly it's, access is harder for outside. Um, but, you know, there are people who, who like festivals, who become disabled, who go to extraordinary lengths to get to festivals with their disability. So it, it, it is it is doable. It is just quite difficult. And it would be an awful, it would be a huge change for EasterCon fans who are, who are used, to, used to hotel spaces. I mean, I would say that the, the, the excluding children of 12, it's a thing that I assume is temporary like will probably be for this year only until we basically get around to testing and licensing vaccines in in small children whereas i think i was thinking you know if this is like three or five years down the line and we still need to be trying to do good ventilation and social distancing how is that compatible kind of long term that might be more of a digression than we need and i will say the sfx weekenders I think the thing with SFX Weekenders, or at least the ones I went to, is the sites are large, but usually very flat. They're kind of single story type things, basically all on tarmac. And so the issue is more, I think, the distance. And I'm not sure how many kind of accessible chalets they have, but I suspect the ones they do have are very close in to the central facilities. I will just say something I want to add is I've just looked up SFX Weekender and it happens in early February in North Wales. So like there is clearly there is clearly a, an extent to which you can do these things at times when you might think the weather might be inclement. Yeah, yeah I was talking about a Greenfield site, a festival. SFX Weekender is in a holiday camp, which is like that there, there are no tents involved, chalets and central buildings. So it's quite primitive in places and the site is very large. OK, cool. I mean, I would also say that, yeah, they do do them in February in a holiday camp. And it is fucking freezing. I mean, there's no getting around that you're like shivering in the queue for vision chips. Oh, no, but my point is that they still do it. It doesn't stop them. Doesn't stop them, no, but it, it does have some downsides. Uh, this segues into a couple of questions on um, kind of the traditions around EasterCon and whether or not those traditions need to be more codified. Um, so one of the questions that comes up in that thread about future of EasterCon venues is that there was one hotel that was asking for a £200,000 deposit before allowing EasterCon to book the space. And that is the sort of money that if there was a central EasterCon organisation that managed the pass-along funds, we might be able to do that, but like certainly not 
with the way that we do it at the moment um and also kind of if there was um a codified eastercon constitution would that constitution demand that you held eastercon at easter um and would that prevent moving the convention in summer for the warmer weather and the outside um so what do we what do we think the implications are for all of this and kind of the traditions of eastercon and does this have any bearing on the arguments around you know, does there need to be a, a written or a codified Eastercon constitution? There does not need to be a written or codified Eastercon constitution. I think the the hotels that are asking for £200,000 deposits are taking the piss because that's not normal in the industry and it's a nonsense. And if you went and said, um, I'm thinking of holding a wedding and they said, oh, we need £200,000 deposit, you come off it, mate. You know, it's just nonsense. And I think that's that's part of how you go about managing the negotiations. Hotels are very skittish because of the lack of um, leadership from the government on on supporting venues for events. Now, there has been a scheme announced, it might only apply to festivals, but it might apply to events generally to provide COVID insurance for 2021. So, so if the government, 2022, if the government's going to pick up COVID, COVID cancellation insurance for events, then that is something that we might be able to take advantage of. But that's the reason they were asking for a huge deposit. It's not because they would normally do that. It's because they're kind of trying not to go bust and going, oh, but we can't afford the risk that that this event will fold a couple of weeks out, leaving us with nothing. So I feel like if you did have, I think this is a very good example of why you don't want to codify a constitution there, because if you have a, if you give East Dakota a constitution, then what things do you mandate in it? And of course, Worldcon went the route of mandating very, very little in the constitution. You have to you have to have the Hugos, you have to have the Whistles Business Meeting. And that's it. Um, and even so, they found that, that COVID actually created circumstances they hadn't really considered for the constitution. And I don't know that they've quite managed to sort those out. So I think you might you probably wouldn't want, if you did write a constitution for Easter card, you wouldn't probably want to ha- specify that it had to be at Easter. I think we would probably look favorably on a bid that came along and said well we've got a great site but we're going to have to move it to whit week i i don't know i people might struggle what's whit week whit week is um the late the late may bank holiday whitson and it is the most expensive it's very unlikely that at least because they're going to move there because it is the most expensive week of the year for holidays <laughs> and of course everyone holidays in the uk now which is um, so ho- hotels are finding that some hotels are finding that they can't actually sell their rooms in a way that they weren't expecting to. So it's very it's complicated. I think I agree with Alison in that uh, in some ways it is nice to give each convention the freedom to kind of do what it likes. I think it it's I don't want to you know yeah prescribe what they have to do and therefore stop them you know experimenting with different things. I think it is also true that Easter cons do follow a lot of unwritten rules. And I worry that kind of having a big set of unwritten rules that you kind of don't really know about, but sort of have to follow because everyone has for the past N years is also quite off-putting because it's kind of this big burden of institutional knowledge that you then have to try and pick up on before you can really get thoroughly stuck into the Eastercon. And I also worry that if, if an Eastercon does come along and do something which is not at all part of, you know, any constitution, but is one of these unwritten rules, um, that they might end up with quite a lot of backlash. 
I mean, I think one thing Follicon did that was quite controversial at the time was we changed how the art auction worked, didn't we? I think we had a silent auction. Yeah, which at the time I think there was some pushback against, but ended up working fine as it was. I mean, people were unhappy about it and some artists didn't exhibit, but we had a good art show and people made more money than I had previously. So, <laughs> No, and I think I see, but I see what Liz means. Like, I think that it cuts both ways, which is it gives you the freedom to do what you might want to do or might need to do, but it also gives you enough rope to hang yourself with if you do like inadvertently decide something that um the community generally is is a bit put off by um i wonder whether having it at the easter weekend is one of those things that would put people off um i i really like having it easter and i think um so i with again with my academic hat on the brilliant thing about easter is that universities tend to get days off either side of the bank holidays so it does mean you have like a day to pack a day to travel uh, and then a day to come back and decompress which is really really nice i don't know like obviously academia is not a large enough segment of the fandom for that to be a huge thing but for me it's a pretty large segment of the fandom <laughs> it's a huge huge it's much bigger segment of the fandom than it was when i got into fandom yeah but i do wonder whether if you tried doing it a different date you would find very abruptly that that was one of the more important unwritten rules i don't know um I think if you tried to run EasterCon not at Easter, there would be a convention. There would be a convention happening at Easter, because people would just kind of go, "Ooh, there's a void. I can put a con there. It's got four days. It'll be good." No, and like I've always wanted to see a real life schism, so that might be fun. There, there um, the year we ran the first FollyCon, um, at the same time as the traditional fans were absolutely up in arms at these crappy media fans taking over their lovely EasterCon. The media fans were running another convention that weekend because EasterCon wasn't anything like media enough for us. There was a convention called Elador that I think lots of people we know went to, including Clara Mark. And that happened over the Easter weekend, three or four years, I think, before before folding. And that was a media con? Um, it was more media. It was still, still towards the fanish end of media cons. I think it was probably most like Redemption. And now, obviously, the Redemption and Elador people will come along and say, no, it wasn't like that at all. But I think it was closer to Redemption than to to what we think of as gate shows. So it wasn't a gate show. I think one other aspect we haven't thought about about moving from Easter is essentially the only time that people with children can take their children away for a four-day weekend is during one of the school holidays. And Easter is probably the only one where you could run a con at reasonable prices in a hotel that is part of the school holidays so i think there's that as well you know if we moved it to a random weekend in for we've, we've tried to pick a random four-day weekend in april or you know june or something that wasn't a holiday that would be an issue no that's actually a really good point i hadn't i hadn't really thought about that but i guess easter easter doesn't just tick the box of four-day weekend that you don't have to take any leave to attend that the hotel might not be hugely expensive for but it also ticks the box of in the summer holidays so parents can come uh not summer holidays sorry in the school holidays so the parents can come and that i guess is pretty much the only time at which all of those things are true so it may well be that moving away is is difficult but then you know world cons and nasfix manage so i i guess there's a counter argument which is if other countries can have their flagship conventions at different times of year maybe the uk could too i guess world con tends to be over the labor day weekend and i don't know what the u.s school holidays are like 
but that might be a factor. Hasn't been for some years. So Wilcon sort of lost the Labor Day weekend because they were having trouble getting sites because that weekend had become very popular for conferences. And although traditionally schools didn't restart in the US until after Labor Day, that's no longer true in many parts of the US. So people were finding that kids were back in school. And then now I think Worldcon's been mostly on summer weekends for several years at this point. Of course, when the Worldcon comes to the UK, it mostly, I don't know if this is true, I might be talking bollocks. Was Luncon over the bank holiday weekend? Well, no, I don't think so. It was mid-August, right? The um, the Glasgow Worldcons were over the bank holiday, which is the obvious place to put it. Um, if you go to luncon3.org, you get a gambling website these days. <gasps> yeah, <laughs> I would have kept the I would have kept the website. Um, it was fourteenth to the eighteenth of August. Yeah, so it was the week before. I I can't if it was, but I mean there was a reason we had to do it on that weekend uh, because that was when we could get the XL. I think. What I can't remember is whether that was it. Was it within the school holiday still? I guess it would be. Yeah, mid-August is. I think that was quite important to us. Just one very quick remaining question I have, which is we were talking earlier about the reason that um, hotels have been asking for those huge deposits that we we referenced earlier um, is probably due to the increased risk, uh, which is almost certainly true. Does the increased risk make it riskier for convention committees to run EastCon? And like, how can that be mitigated? Is there a way or is it just we have to shrug our shoulders and hope? I'm hoping that the fact that there's a Worldcon coming to the UK in 2024, probably that will have a budget that far exceeds that of any Eastercon. And what will happen is if Eastercons around that are struggling, we'll kind of get the Worldcon to lose our losses in their rounding figures. Sorry, Esther. <laughs> a more professional way of saying that would be that Eastercon, one of the nice things about the Eastercon community is that on the rare occasions that something has gone wrong, the community has rallied round to ensure that large losses have not been sustained. But there's a risk. It's, I mean, Eastercon running has a kind of inherent risk in it, but then everything does. And one of the one of the big arguments for incorporating is that if you incorporate that risk, does not settle onto the committee members. But it is still there in the community because if Eastercon goes bust, it, if, if we made it a company and then the company went bankrupt, that would make it much harder for people to, to run successful conventions. That's a good point. It's one of those things where I'm sort of vaguely aware when running Eastercons that there might be some like repercussions for the committee should we have no money and go bust. But I sort of assume that at that point there will be enough kind of community rallying around and bits of pass along and so on. I mean, assuming that, you know, the, the Eastercon goes bust, you know, not through the fault of the committee being terrible and spending all the money on bouncy castles or something like that. You know, I assume that we'd all sort of go around and help. But I mean, it, when you're getting into some like we want an enormous deposit because you can't get insurance, that becomes more of an issue. And also all the Eastercons I have worked on where I've been high enough to be paying attention. They've all had, you know, insurance in case of, you know, disaster, not being able to hold the convention. That's bad. Yeah. So let's do picks. Alison, you go first. I went and saw Dune and I did it in the cinema because I kind of... I, I was conditioned by Lawrence of Arabia as a small child and I kind of think that if you're going to see a movie about 
desert scenery, you should probably go and do it on the big screen. It wasn't as bad as some other people's cinema experiences. I might do it again. Quite enjoyed it. Um, Dune is pretty good, probably worth seeing on the big screen. It is only half the novel. And in order to, I think, avoid David Lynch's problem of having massive gobs of exposition, Villeneuve's decided to not have any exposition at all, which is fine if you've read the book. If you haven't, you probably aren't going to realise what's going on because nothing is explained. And when things are explained that are absolutely critical, they do it with a very, with a thundering score over the top of it. But I liked it anyway. Lots of good performances. Look forward to the second one. Liz put a comment on the Dune soundtrack in the show notes, listeners, and I'm going to reproduce it here. Did that come through? It worked all right for me. I definitely heard a good thundering. That is the Inception Bois. And that was Liz's sole comment in the show notes. And I was like, fair enough. So it's in my soundboard now. I don't really have a second pick, but my second pick is just to say that I watched Black Widow last night. And because I've been quite rude about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I quite liked it. I don't want to say I really quite liked it a lot. I especially like the the, the way in which um, Natasha's um, sleeper cell is depicted as a sort of screwed up version of the Incredibles and and they have the the like most hilarious family superhero um shenanigans i think i have ever seen in a movie and i really like that a lot nice i have not seen dune i might go and see it at the cinema but it is like over two and a half hours long which is usually my threshold for not seeing things in the cinema oh yes it's um it, it is a test of your middle-aged bladder control is is dune bring back intermissions that's what i say but I did. I saw Black Widow in the cinema and I very much enjoyed it. I thought, I mean, I love Rachel Weiss and I love David Harbour and I love, I hadn't seen the lady who plays her sister before, but I loved her. Florence Pugh, she's amazing. She's really, really good. Absolutely top talent. Florence Pugh is in Little Women with Timothy Chalamet. So there you go. Tie up. She is amazing in Little Women as Amy. Timothy Chalamet actually is much less impressive in Little Women than he was in Dune. I thought he was fantastic in Dune. I'm confused as to whether I'm going to like Dune because I loved Arrival but hated Blade Runner 2049. I have no idea which end of the Villeneuve scale this movie is going to be on. It depends what you hated about Blade Runner 2049, I think. I think mostly the, 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 the writing, acting and direction. It was very pretty. Well, I think it says a different writer and different actors, but the same director. So let's see. Okay. The things I didn't like about Blade Runner 2049 were largely about the the agency of women in the film and the directorial approach to that. And this is also a problem with Dune, just because Dune is a novel written 60 years ago by a white guy. And and it's kind of like Dune works within that and it does lots of things to try to get over some of that. But it, it kind of, you know, it's got its source material and, and if that's a problem, then it remains a problem. So one of the particular problems with Blade Runner for 2049 is Villeneuve's male gaze. And although there's a little bit of that in this film, it's not irritating in the same way, or at least it didn't irritate me in the same way. 
it's not as good a film as Arrival, but then there aren't very many science fiction films that are as good as Arrival. And it's also only half the book. So we need to see Dune Part 2 to really draw conclusions about where he's going with all of this. And he said he wants to do Dune Messiah as well, so he can do the whole story of Paul. I think that's fair because I think some of the like more male gazy bits of Dune are explicitly because they're kind of from Paul's perspective. And so they help remind us like who his character is. And oh, I've now forgotten. What was your other point about Dune, about Blade Runner? I remember now, which is that, yeah, I think uh, Dune, you know, basically gender swaps one of the characters in order to improve that. Um, and it works perfectly well. I went to Croydon and attended an in-person gaming event with 43 other people. That's my pick. What sort of gaming event? I'll give you three guesses. Oh, it would be an Arkham Horror thing. Yeah, okay. Yes, guess one, correct. Uh, it was a thing called Arkham Knights. And how did it, how's your sanity? My sanity, I came out alive and they kind of gave a lot of swag away and they did loads of games and it was good. We played a thing called The Blob, the blob that ate everything. Uh, the Blob ate our ability to eat food and drink which was very annoying for the cafe we were playing in because the waiters kept coming around and saying do you want anything we're like we can't the blob at it uh and explaining that to someone who doesn't know the game is a bit complicated uh but it was very fun and we won and it was good there's a big group photo that i'll put in the show notes but at this event i played a game which is new which is called unfathomable and it is a social deduction game set on a 1910s um ocean liner called the atlantica and you are crossing from southampton to boston when you are attacked by deep ones and the game is basically you fending off these deep ones as you try and get to boston but some of you are in fact deep one hybrids and you are working against the group uh, to try and sow discord and mayhem uh, and if this sounds like a familiar uh, premise to you and you have played the Battlestar Galactica board game, that is because it is indeed based off the Battlestar Galactica board game. It's a lot better than the Battlestar Galactica board game. So if you've played that and you're like, oh God, I hated that game. It's so badly paced and it takes too long. They have fixed the pacing issues and it takes less time. So that's good. It's also a social deduction game where if you are sitting thinking, aha, I am terrible at social deduction games because I am a bad liar and I do not like playing games where that is a problem for me. Um, it's a game where you can immediately announce you are a hybrid and just be very obvious about your sabotages or you can be very subtle and sneaky and do it that way. So it's a game that kind of rewards both play styles, which I think is good. And I really, really enjoyed it, which is good because I'd already bought a copy, but it's nice to know that I won't have to sell the copy I bought. Hurrah! The um, And I will also say the Ludaquist in Croydon is possibly the best board game cafe in the UK. It is very good. I would highly recommend if you live anywhere near it, uh, going to it is lovely. That that feels like I should have an entire weekend where we go and stay with friends in Croydon and spend one day at the Ludaquist playing board games and one day at Flip Out Pinball. Would you take those friends and go and play Arkham Horror with them? What, Alison? I mean, I might need ropes, mightn't I? And then it might actually become kidnap rather than escorting. I will do a quick pick. I am continuing to work through the um, Hugo finalists because having thought, oh, the Hugos are late this year, I have plenty of time. I, in fact, have three weeks. Who could have thought that would happen? I know. Who could have, who could have uh, conceived of this? So I read one of the best novella nominees, The Empress of Salt and Fortune by Nivo. Um, I will know actually all the best novella finalists are from Tor.com this year. They have really been putting out a lot of good novellas. 
Um, and this is, it's, it's a nice fancy novella. It's, uh, basically a cleric who is going around trying to collect, um, the history of the Empress's life or aspects of the Empress's life after this Empress has died. Um, and so she goes to the house in which the Empress was once exiled. And here's the story of the Empress, um, from Rabbit, who is an early woman who turns out to have been the Empress's uh, servant and they kind of go around cataloging the contents of this palace and while they're cataloging it you kind of get all the different aspects of the empress's life um you know she basically has a diplomatic um marriage to an emperor who banishes her after he has an heir and you know she basically secretly plans her revenge from exile um with the help of her friends and servants um, and it sort of, you know, tells that whole story and, and the, you know, they're off to the coronation of the new empress. Um, and it's just a nice setting. Um, I like the conceit of having like the cleric who is collecting these stories and kind of what is what is Rabbit telling uh, the narrator and what is she not telling her. The idea that, you know, Rabbit is essentially goes overlooked because she is a peasant girl who is a servant when actually she's one of the keys to the whole thing. Um, and I think it works really well at novella length as well. It gives you enough to kind of flesh out the characters, but it didn't need to be uh, a really long story. So I, I very much liked it. So I'm going to read the rest of Tor.com uh, best novella finalists now and see which one is best. I've read The Empress of Salt and Fortune. I really liked it. It is um, one of my two favourite novellas on the roster, Liz. Um, so you may you may disagree with... You may think other ones are better than than I did, but I, I thought The Empress of Soul and Fortune was probably either the best or the second best. I think it largely depends how much you like Finna, which is a brilliant story uh, set in an Ikea. Uh, I loved that story, but I know that it didn't land for everyone. If I tell you I've read three so far and Finna is at the bottom of the pile. Ah, uh, basically it's, it's, uh, the, the conceit is that there are parallel universes and the membrane between the universes gets more porous when those universes are like closer to each other and ikeas they are especially porous because every little zone of an ikea is basically its own parallel universe anyway and so basically you can go to like interdimensional ikeas and they do and it's brilliant yeah i thought the conceit of finna was great and then the actual novella was like just kind of a letdown because it couldn't live up to the conceit so do you guys know about the people who filmed a series of youtube stories in ikeas around the world well really their local ikeas amazing i did not know that and it gets very meta because it gets to the point where every ikea in north america has has the photos of these people taped up in the staff room saying if they come on site because i mean ikea is a great place to film your home video right because they've got all the sets that was the Octothought Podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. I don't know, is there a kind of clean term for a giant large amount of something like metric fuck ton but podcast appropriate you could just say a metric ton i guess it's not very much fun but so i mean i would ton. say like a shitload and i guess you can't say that Take on the, podcast in the bed approach it's four in the funkin morning and your funkin hip-hop is keeping me awake
a metric fracton of PowerPoints and internet, which made me very happy. Like that. Will that do? Yeah, fine. I'd have kept the fuck ton in. You can have one fuck. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.